Please take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 4. We're going to be talking about the faith of Abraham this morning. Romans chapter 4. I know for many of us this is one of the uh, favorite passages of Scripture when we look at the life of Abraham and uh, his role in God's plan for the people of God. Let's bow before God in prayer. Father, I thank you for your Scriptures that we have this record of the people of God of your word that tells of how you moved at different points in the lives of these individuals, of their struggles, their joys, their steps of faith that they took as they walked with you and trusted you. It is an encouragement to us to do the same. And I pray today that as we talk about Abraham's life, in particular, his faith, that we would have that same kind of bold and confident trust in you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you know, one of the most significant persons in the Bible is Abraham. He is a man of faith who is used as an example in so many different places. Abraham lived about 2,000 years before Christ, about 2,100 years actually before Christ. And what always amazes me when I think about Abraham and I place him in kind of the chronology of history is that when Abraham went down into Egypt... Those pyramids that we still see today or hear about were there at the time that Abraham went down into Egypt. They were built before that. And I'm sure as he went there, he was kind of amazed by what was going on in this part of the world as well. Having come out of Iraq, modern-day Iraq, or what would have been the land of the Chaldeans. He was called by God to leave his own country and his people in the land of Ur of the Chaldeans, a city that was there, and he was called to become the father of God's people. Abraham's name originally was Abram. It meant exalted father. Most of the commentators think that that was actually a reference to the moon god or this father deity that they worshipped, the people worshipped in uh, the Chaldeans. And that God called him out to leave that pagan lifestyle, to leave that land that he was in. And he changed his name. His name would become Abraham, which means the father of a multitude or the father of nations. And what's kind of ironic about that name change is at the time that God said, I'm going to give you this new name, Abraham and Sarah did not have any children of their own. And it might have seemed kind of humorous to Abraham to be called this father of nations when he doesn't have a child. God, what are you doing? And why would you do this? At the time that he was given that name, there was a a moment when Abraham was wrestling with God about these things and wondering, God, what is your plan for me? that God would come and He would meet with him very personally, and we're going to talk about that later in this particular message. Today, three world religions look to Abraham as the father of their faith. The Jewish people look back to Abraham. The Muslims trace their line through Ishmael. And as Christians, we look back to Abraham as the father of our faith. What God had said of Abraham has indeed come true. And Paul knew that if he was going to convince his readers at that time that we are saved by faith and not by works, he was going to have to talk about Abraham. Because everybody looked back to Abraham. And Paul, you need to convince me from the Scriptures 
that Abraham was indeed justified by faith. And that's exactly what Paul does in this text. Paul points to Abraham as an example of one who was justified by faith in God alone. And in the process, he tells us some very important things about our faith. Number one, he tells us that faith and works are not the same. Now that may seem like an obvious statement, but if you have done some reading or you have heard about these things before, you know that there are some people that want to make faith a work, almost as though we merit our faith by doing this, or, uh, merit our salvation by doing this work of faith. And no, that's not true either. Even the faith we have to believe in God is a gift that comes from Him as He works in our heart to prompt this attitude of trust in God. Let's take a look at how Paul describes it here as I read for us verses 1 to 8. He said, What what then shall we say? That Abraham our forefather discovered in this matter. If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the Scripture say? It says that Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work but trusts God, who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. And David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. What a tremendous promise that is. You see, Paul is saying if Abraham was saved by works, he had something to boast about. But no, that's not true. Abraham cannot boast before God that he earned his salvation. And neither can we. And how does Paul defend that or answer that? Where does he make his appeal? He appeals to the Scripture. That's Paul's authority. He goes back to the Word of God and he says, What does the Scripture say? And quoting from Genesis 15, he says that Abraham believed God and that it was credited to him as righteousness. His faith was counted as righteousness in the sight of God. That story in Genesis 15 is a really interesting one where there is this dramatic conversation that takes place between God and Abraham. God has called Abraham to go to this new land, a land that he does not know. And Abraham sets out on this journey and God tells him that he's going to bless him and that Abraham is going to be a blessing to all the peoples of the earth. That through him is going to come this promised one who will be this blessing to every nation on earth. And in Genesis 15, Abraham is having some thoughts about that and kind of wondering, you know, God, how can you say these things? Since I remain childless, and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus, a servant of his. You've given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. And what does God say? The word of the Lord came to him, and he said, This man will not be your heir. But a son coming from your own body will be your heir. And then he took him outside and he said, Look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. And then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And Abraham believed God in what he was saying. And it was counted to him as righteousness. 
Can you imagine that scene? I mean, here Abraham is, just like we wrestle with things in our life. You know, there are times when we encounter trials in our life or difficulties or roadblocks or things like that, and we go, God, what are you doing? I mean, I thought, I thought when I put my life in your hands it was going to go a little bit smoother or there wouldn't be these twists and turns along the way. God, are you sure you know what you're doing here? And Abraham is feeling like that. And what does God say? He says, Abraham, step outside. I want you to come outside of the tent. And outside of the tent, he says, I want you to look up at the stars in the sky. Away from all the lights like we have in our towns and cities, the stars are pretty impressive. If you've ever been out camping or you've been out in a remote area where there's no lights from the city to block your view and you see the stars in the sky and the Milky Way that's up there, it's astounding. And God said to Abram, go ahead, start counting. Can you count all those stars up there? No, Lord. I mean, that's, that's impossible. There's just way too many to count. And Abraham says to him, and God says to Abram, excuse me, that Abraham, that's how many your descendants are going to be. If it were possible to count all of them, that's how many your children will become. And Abraham does this amazing thing. He just says, Okay, Lord, I trust you. I trust you. I don't know how you're going to do it, but I believe you. And it was that faith in God that God rewarded and blessed. When God uh, comes to him and talks about this situation, we're going to see later how Abraham took note of all the facts and all those kind of things. But at this point in his life, he chose to trust God on what he was doing. Paul goes on to reason in this passage, you know, if a man works for something... He deserves to be paid a wage. In fact, the employer or the owner is obligated to pay him. But we know the Scripture says that God is no one's debtor. There's no one that God owes a debt to who has ever given something to him that God is obligated to do this. No, instead, for the man who trusts God, his salvation is by grace. It is a gift to be received by faith with joy and gratitude. And when we understand that, what a great and precious gift that we have been given, it stirs our heart. Paul also points to David as an example of that. David, Israel's great king. He said of David that David experienced God's grace in his life too. In that tragic affair with Bathsheba, where David saw this woman, desired to take her to be his own wife, even though she was another man's wife, he coveted her. And then he committed adultery with her, and then he arranged for her husband to be murdered in battle. Under the Old Covenant, there was no provision for such high-handed sins. Sins of the high hand, they were called. Sins of rebellion against God. Sins where you knew exactly what you were doing and you chose to do it anyway. There was no sacrifice for that. The law demanded death. And David had broken three of the commandments in this act of rebellion against God and he deserved to die. And David knew that. 
And all David could do was throw himself on the mercy of God and cry out to God for forgiveness. And God forgave his sin by grace, undeserved. And David goes on and he writes Psalm 32, these words, How blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. That's amazing. I mean, that's why Paul writes in verse 5, and I don't want you to miss this because this is an astounding thing. He says, However to the man who does not work but trusts God, who justifies the wicked, his life is credited as righteousness, or his faith is credited as righteousness. You know, that here is a God who, who does what we don't want an earthly judge to do. I mean, here is a God who lets the wicked get off. He forgives them. And when we think about that, how can God do that? How can He let Him get away with that? It's because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. God is gracious and merciful. And when we come to Him by faith, acknowledging our sins, He forgives us and He cleanses us. Now, if that isn't the most amazing thing, I mean, if that doesn't just kind of make your jaw drop when you think about it, what Paul is saying here is that we are saved by faith, just look at Abraham. And we are forgiven by faith, look at David. And you know what else? We are to live by faith every single day. That's the theme of this book, that the righteous will live by faith. We live every day by faith in God. We need to rely upon Him. We cannot walk this journey on our own. We can't live the Christian life in our own strength. We can't please God in our own strength. We are to live by faith in the promises of God's Word. Even sin in the life of a believer does not cancel God's justification. God is able to forgive. You can see why, as Paul was teaching this, why later these questions are going to come up. Well, what does that mean, Paul? Does that mean we can just go on sinning and it's no big deal? I mean, does that honor God? You can see how our sinful heart starts to work on those things and say, if God can do this, wow, well, does that mean we have this kind of freedom to do whatever we want? No, not at all. There's an answer we're going to come to for that as well. But I want you to hear how remarkable this is. That God is able to forgive even the wicked and justify them by faith in Jesus Christ. He tells us secondly in this passage that our faith is to be like Abraham's faith. And we see that in verses 9 to 17. Let me read that for you. He said, is this blessedness or joy only for the circumcised? In other words, is it only for the Jew? Or is it also for the uncircumcised? We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then he is the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised in order that the righteousness in order that righteousness might be credited to them 
and he is also the father of the circumcised, who not only are circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. And it was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who live by law are heirs, faith is no value and the promise is worthless, because the law brings wrath, and where there is no law there is no transgression. Therefore the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. Let's go back and think about that. Abraham is a good example of faith for several reasons. He tells us, first of all, that Abraham was saved apart from circumcision. Uh, Abraham had this encounter with God and placed his trust in him and his promise 14 years before the sign of circumcision was given. And remember, Paul had argued it's not circumcision that saves, just like we would say today, it's not baptism that saves you. It is faith in God that saves us. And he would also say that Abraham is a good example because he was saved by faith apart from the law. The law wasn't given until well over 400 years after Abraham. And you have to go to the time of Moses when the law is given. Thirdly, Abraham was saved by faith and the promise of God. The very same way that we are saved. Abraham looked forward to the coming of a Messiah. This one who would be the blessing to all the nations of the earth. He trusted God for his descendants. He trusted God for his salvation. And we look back to the person of Jesus Christ and we place our trust in him in that same way. The object of Abraham's faith was God. The object of our faith is to be God. And Abraham believed a couple very outstanding things about God. We see that here at the end of what I read in verse 17. That he believed that God is able to raise the dead. God gives life to the dead. Abraham believed in a resurrection. We see that faith when it came to the point of this promise that he's going to have a son. And he looks at his own body. He's 99 years old. He looks at his wife. She's 90 years old. You know, we're well past the time when we're going to have children. Our body's as good as dead. And yet he believed that God could give life to the dead. And we see it also when later that child Isaac is born and he is grown and the time comes when God says, I want you to sacrifice your only son. I want you to come and lay him on the altar. And I want you to sacrifice him. And Abram didn't know what God was doing. But he believed God. And so he was willing to even sacrifice his only son because he believed that God could raise the dead. God, I don't understand this, but I will trust you. That's a pretty powerful thing, isn't it? And secondly, he believed that God can call things that are not as though they were. He speaks 
and it is. God is a God who creates out of nothing. He spoke and the worlds came into being. He spoke and the universe existed. He can speak and do things in your life and my life today too. God can do the impossible. And every time I read about Abraham, I ask the question of me and I ask it of you today, how big is our God? I mean, do we have a faith like that, that God can do what He's promised, what He said? You know, can God handle your job situation today? Can God handle our economy? Can God handle what's going on in our world today? Can God give you wisdom on the decisions that you need? Can God handle your illness or whatever it is that you are wrestling with today? Can God handle your children and concerns you have for them? God is still God. It's the same God. And our faith is not in our faith itself. Our faith is in God. It's only as good as the object of our faith. And what we see when we come to know God better is that He is an awesome and mighty God. You know, I think about our faith being only as good as an object of our faith. I can illustrate it in this way. And that, you know, in a few weeks, the lakes around us are going to freeze. They're kind of starting to turn that way already. Well, if the day after the ice freezes, you know, you think that's going to hold you up and you walk out on there, you're going to have a mighty cold swim when you go through that ice. But come mid-January, and those lakes have been frozen for a long time, even if you're a little timid and you walk out on that ice, chances are it's going to hold you up. The difference isn't your faith, it's the object of your faith. And even the most timid believer can be saved if they will put their trust in Christ. Jesus said, even if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, be moved, and it will be moved. It's not us, it's God who has the power to do those things. And our faith is to be rooted and grounded in Him. And the third thing we see in this text is that faith doesn't ignore the facts. Faith focuses on the power and character of God, and that's the difference. You know, some people look at faith and they want to uh, disparage it. You know, those that are critics of believers will want to say, well, faith is just a crutch, or it's just for weak-minded people, or it's for those who can't deal with reality in our world, and they'll want to kind of put it down like that. They don't understand what faith really is. Faith isn't this blind leap that doesn't know anything at all. No. Instead, faith does look at the facts and considers them, but it chooses to put confidence in the character and the power of God. Look at how Abraham did that here as we read verses 18 and following. It says, Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed. And so he became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, So shall your offspring be. And without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what He had promised. Hear that again. 
That's what faith is. Faith came to, I mean, Abraham came to that point where he was fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. And this is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Abraham didn't ignore the facts about his age or Sarah's age. He simply believed that God had power to do what he had promised. That's true faith. When theologians talk about faith and what's involved in it, true faith has three elements to it. First of all, faith involves knowledge, a knowledge of the truth. We need to know something about God and about His Son, about the way of salvation. Faith without content to it is an empty faith. And so we come to the Scriptures and we find out about God. Calvin said that faith rests upon knowledge and not upon a pious ignorance. We come to the Word of God. I mean, where do we find that knowledge of God? We find it in the Scriptures. In Romans 10:17, Paul will say that faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the Word of Christ. And that's why we study the Scriptures. And the more we know about God and His Word, the greater our faith grows and the more strength we have. But secondly, faith also involves the heart. It's not just head knowledge. I mean, the Bible tells us in James 2 that even the demons believe and they shudder. But they don't love God and they will not bow the knee to Him. Demons are monotheists. They believe that there is one God. They would acknowledge some of our confessions. They just don't love God and worship Him. And if someone can hear the gospel about Christ's redeeming love and be unmoved by it, something's wrong. You see, faith touches the heart. It stirs our heart and emotions. I think about the night in which I was saved. And I came to Christ and I heard the gospel. Something moved in my heart. And there was that assurance of faith that what was being said and proclaimed was true. And it touched my heart and I wanted to know God like that too. I think of the many stories that have been told uh, as the Jesus film has been shown in remote, remote parts of the world. In places of Africa, for example, where people had never seen a movie before and then they see this movie on the life of Christ. And they get into it and they hear the story. And when they see this good man being beaten and abused and then crucified, they get angry. You know, they start yelling. I mean, there are times when people have had to turn off the movie. You know, those showing the movie, the Jesus film workers. And they've had to stop it and kind of calm the crowd down and settle them down and say, just hang in there, wait, wait, there's more to the story. You know, because they're, they're upset. Why should this good man be put to death? Why should this man sent from God be treated this way? And when it comes to the end of the story and they see the resurrection and they see Jesus Christ alive, they weep and they shout and they dance for joy. They are moved by it. And there are times when whole villages and tribes have come to faith in Jesus Christ because God has touched their heart. That's what faith does. 
Jesus said we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, and all our strength. And thirdly, faith involves commitment. It involves trust. It is a commitment to follow God with our whole life. Jesus said to the disciples that if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. If you love God, you'll serve Him. If you love God, you will follow Him and become His disciple. And Jesus said in this tremendous promise in Mark 10, 29-30, He said, I tell you the truth that no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and fields. And with them, persecutions. Yeah, there's going to be tough times. There will be trials and persecutions that will come. But your reward will be great. And in the age to come, you will receive eternal life. The reward is worth the cost. You see, when you look at these three things, that faith involves a knowledge and a stirring of the heart or the emotion and affection, religious affections, as Edwards would put it, and it involves a commitment, it really is like a marriage, isn't it? You know, when a man and woman meet, and there's an attraction there, and the guy wants to get to know this girl that he has his eye on, they spend time together. And the more he learns about there, the more he is drawn to her. And there's a stirring of the heart, if you will. There's an affection. We talk about it as a couple falling in love. Because they now know something about each other and their hearts are being knit together and they love one another, but they are not married until they come to that point where they make and express their commitment to one another with vows and rings and they say, I do. I take you to be my wife. And they express that kind of love and commitment that is to be a permanent union. It's the same thing with Christ. We can know something about Jesus, but that doesn't save us in itself. Our heart needs to be stirred and drawn to Him with that kind of love and affection. But in a sense, you seal the deal, if you will, when you say to Jesus Christ, Jesus, will you forgive me? And be my Savior and Lord. The Bible says that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. We trust Him for our salvation. We trust Him for our life every day, don't we? And my question to you is, can you trust God like Abraham with your life, with your children, with your future plans, with your worries and your fears? Let's pray. Father, we come to you today and we ask that you would increase our faith. Lord, help us to be men and women who believe you, who take you at your word too and all of the promises that you have said. And when you speak to our life situations and you come with that assurance of faith, Lord, help us to walk with you, our hand and yours. 
Carry us, Lord, in those times when we struggle with what's going on in our life. And fill us to the full with your Holy Spirit and continue to change us. God, I thank you for your amazing grace that you are a God who forgives and can justify even the wicked because that includes people like me. We pray this in your name. Amen.